seems to be that there's a little bit of competition as to who can offer the most incredible version of Amazing Grace. Uh, Brian, I don't think, when you sang Amazing Grace a few weeks ago, I don't think I could conceive of anyone offering a better, more beautiful version, but they're giving you a run for your money. And uh, just to let you know, John and I will be entering our version next week on kazoo. So, no. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was on the diving team, and for three years of, of high school, my dad was my coach. And in most ways, he was the best coach I had. But I'll be honest, I don't really recommend coaching your own child in any sport. Uh, there was a lot of long hard conversations and evenings after meets. But I do remember one time at a meet, my dad almost getting thrown out of the meet for heckling the officials so much, he thought they were giving me scores that were too low. Now, if you're not familiar with diving, that just doesn't happen. Uh, so I was slightly embarrassed by dad heckling the officials and getting in uh, on their case. But I also remember feeling a little bit of pride to know that my dad was for me, uh, that he cared for me, that he had my back, that he was willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with officials on my behalf. Again, it's kind of odd in diving to see that, but there's kind of a phenomenon in, in, in baseball where that's almost commonplace. If a team is going through a slump or having a, a hard go of it or, or they feel like they're on the raw end of a lot of the officiating, uh, the umpiring, a coach, a manager, might actually intentionally get thrown out of a game. You know, go up to the umpire and start kicking dirt on their shoe or start yelling at him and turning red in the face, hoping that they'll get kicked out and that the, the troops, the team, will rally behind them in this display of kind of solidarity. The coach is for us and we'll be there for the coach kind of mentality. In the passage that was read this morning, the temptation narrative of Jesus, we see Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil. We see and get a, a glimpse of Jesus being for us. And that's an incredibly encouraging thing to see. Jesus for us. Stepping in and, and going toe-to-toe -to -toe with our great adversary on our behalf. This morning as we think about that passage, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, I think there's five features that we ought to pay attention to that will give us some more insight into how Jesus is for us. First, and maybe it's easy to overlook this, but first we see the humanity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just for us. Jesus became one of us so that He could be for us. In the early centuries of the church, the church was wrestling with how to define the person of Jesus. And on one hand, the Orthodox Christians were fighting against a heresy called Arianism that denied the full deity of Jesus. And the Orthodox Christians said, no, if Jesus isn't fully God, then He can't have enough power, enough His sacrifice did not have enough worth to pay the full debt 
of humanity's sin. But on the other hand, the Orthodox Christians were also fighting against a heresy called Docetism, which denied the humanity of Jesus. The Docetics said Jesus only appeared to be man. He was God, but just had the appearance of man. But the early church, including men like Ignatius, said, no, if Jesus wasn't fully man, then he couldn't be fully for us. He needs to be fully God and fully man to be for us the victor that we need him to be, to be for us the representative that we need him to be. And in this passage, we get a glimpse again of Jesus' true humanity. I mean, after all, what's more human than to be hungry? Right? I missed lunch yesterday driving around looking for cars for my son, and I felt like I was starving. I was hungry because I'm human and I'm spoiled and I expect food every few hours. Jesus went 40 days fasting in the wilderness. And the text says in a very unassuming way, he was hungry. What a dramatic understatement that is, right? He was hungry and he was tired and he was attended to by angels when he had gone through this trial. He was human. And part of what it means to be human is to be tempted. So he entered even into that experience for us. He was tempted and felt the full weight of temptation on our behalf so that he could be for us that sympathetic high priest so that we can go to him when we're tempted and know that he has experienced that same struggle. He's for us. We see Jesus and His humanity here. But in this passage, Jesus also exposes the schemes of our adversary. We see the anatomy of temptation kind of laid out for us so that we can be on guard against it. At our home right now, because I haven't fixed it yet, we have a leaky garbage disposal. So under the garbage disposal, we have a a bucket that's collecting nasty, brackish, gross-looking water. I'll be perfectly honest. I have never, ever been tempted to drink that water. I've never walked into the men's restroom and thought, you know what? I wonder what that urinal cake tastes like. Satan doesn't tempt us with the gross, with the ugly, with the unbecoming. He tempts us with the good. But with the good that comes in the wrong way, or at the wrong time, or from the wrong person, or for the wrong reason. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. He he was tempted with bread. Nothing wrong with bread, I guess, unless you're on a low-carb diet. But then even then, there's nothing morally wrong with bread. But it was because it was being offered in a way to, to bypass what Jesus was trying to do in that moment. It was the wrong time. And Jesus 
is being tempted to prove that God cares for him as a son. If you are the Son of God, then, then throw yourself off the temple and let the angels come and rescue you. Nothing wrong with the knowledge that God cares for us. Nothing wrong with that at all. But the devil here is tempting Jesus to use that knowledge in a prideful, self-serving way. And Jesus is being offered all the kingdoms of the earth, which are truly His anyway. There's nothing wrong. There is absolutely everything right with Jesus reigning over the kingdoms of the earth. But Satan was offering Him a shortcut that bypassed the cross and bypassed His Father's will and took something that was good and twisted it. Which is what Satan has always done. You go back to the garden and man's adversary tempted our first parents with a good fruit that Scripture tells us was pleasing to the eye. And he said to them, if you eat this fruit, you'll know. Knowledge is a good thing, right? But not knowledge gained in this way against the will of God that would make you autonomous from God, which is how that was portrayed. And he said, if you eat this fruit, which is pleasing to the eye, you'll, you'll get knowledge and then you'll be like God. And again, there is something to be said for being like God. We're called to be like God in certain ways. But Satan was tempting him with something good, but in a wrong way for the wrong reason and twisted it. And that's still what he does today. He dangles things in front of us like pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with pleasure. C.S. Lewis reminds us that God is the author of pleasure. But he offers us pleasure without commitment. Pleasures that come from the wrong person or the wrong time in the wrong way. He offers us things like recognition and, and honor and glory but not recognition and honor that is won correctly, but that comes from ruthless self-promotion or by stepping on others to get ahead. He might offer us things like security, and there's nothing wrong with security unless it makes us less dependent on God and a source of pride. He might offer us things like knowledge, which again is a good thing unless it puffs up and makes us proud. He might offer us acceptance, which is a good thing in the right context, but not if it requires us to compromise. The goodness of the temptation is what makes it attractive, what makes it tempting. But here Jesus for us exposes the anatomy of temptation. The goodness of it makes it easier to rationalize. But Jesus shows it for what it really is. Evil. Wickedness. Something that is contrary to the will of God, which is for our ultimate good. So Jesus exposes the schemes of our adversary. And Jesus, again, this is the third aspect that I think we pay attention to. Jesus for us gives us a strategy to fight 
against temptation. Last week before the service, I was asking Bob what verse the reading ended in. And he said, oh, I don't know. I don't have my sword on me. And it made me smile because it made me think of all the times in school. I went to a private Christian school through elementary. We did things called sword drills. And we would do them in Sunday school. And we'd have our Bibles at the ready. And the teacher would yell out a passage and we'd be the quickest or try to be the quickest to find and read that passage. A sword drill. A little bit cheesy, hokey, maybe. But a good reminder that this is our weapon to fight against the schemes of the tempter. In each temptation, Jesus responds by quoting Scripture. Because He knew Scripture. I think this is a really important reminder for us, especially if you're young, to commit Scripture to memory. To commit it. To, to write it on your hands and forehead so that you carry it around with it. Write it on your heart so that you carry it with you into battles against the devil who is trying to tempt you and destroy you. And this is your sword. Jesus wielded it well and shows us to do the same thing. So memorize Scripture. Parents, encourage your children to memorize Scripture. I wish I had done that more. Commit it to memory so that you can use it. But notice also in this passage who else uses Scripture? The devil. The devil uses it and twists it, just like he did in the garden. In the garden, speaking to Eve, the serpent says, did God really say, don't eat of any of the trees of the garden? Well, no, that's not what God had said. God had said, don't eat from that tree. But Satan took Jesus or God's words and twisted them and made them seem more onerous than they were. And Satan still does that. He twists Scriptures. And we can be deceived by that. So we need community to read Scripture with us and help us understand and hold us accountable to right understanding. Well, you might say, well, in Jesus' temptation here in the wilderness, He didn't have community. Right. And we're not Jesus. Right? Uh, we need community. We need the church. We need the local church. We need the church through the ages and the creeds and the confessions that have been handed down to guide us in our understanding of Scripture as we use Scripture to continue to fight against temptation. Jesus shows us how to do that in this passage. Fourth, here we witness Jesus' victory over temptation, over Satan, for us. Let me push that just a little bit further. Here in Matthew 4 and the parallel passages in Luke and Mark, we witness our victory over temptation and Satan in Jesus. 
It's like the story of David and Goliath. Do you remember that Old Testament story? Goliath stood before the armies of Israel and said, send out a champion to fight me. And if I win, Israel will be subject to slavery to us, the Philistines. But if your champion wins, your representative, then we will be subject to you. There's this idea of corporate solidarity where one person stands as the representative for the community. I think that's something that we in the West, or maybe it's specific to us as Americans, struggle with. This idea of corporate solidarity. We struggle with this because, you know, we don't like someone representing us who we don't agree with, who we don't like, who we didn't vote for. And so all the time you hear things like, well, he's not my president. He doesn't speak for me. And I'm not just talking about the current president. You could have heard that eight years ago, 20 years ago. You hear that kind of language, but it is so patently false. Together, corporately, we have a representative. But we don't like to accept that we're guilty of things, that our representatives that have come before us or that are currently representing us have done. We, we, we reject the idea of corporate sin and, and corporate guilt, but it is so much a part of our reality. I remember when I was a high school senior, we had our senior class trip planned and paid for. But a few weeks before the senior class trip, a bunch of seniors threw a great big party in a hotel. And there was arrests made, and thousands of dollars of damage done to the hotel, and the administration canceled the trip. I was furious because I was not a part of that party. I did not do any property damage. And yet, because I was a part of this community called the Seniors, I was also being held accountable. If you've ever been a part of a sports team, you've experienced that. A couple years ago, Jake went through a practice, his baseball team, that was not about baseball. It was purely about punishment. And they ran, and they had kids puking, and they had kids bloody from diving into bases. And because all that was because one kid had been disrespectful to the opposing team's coach. And yet the whole team had to be punished and suffered in this way. There's something about corporate solidarity that we experience and yet bristle against, but it is so biblical and good. And good. Adam represented us in the garden. Adam was tempted by Satan, went toe-to-toe with Satan, and he caved. He folded. He wilted. And because of that, Paul says, all have sinned. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner in Adam. I inherit Adam's sin and his guilt and the shame and the propensity to sin. He was my representative. And in Adam, I share in all of that. But Jesus here stands as the second Adam. 
and goes toe-to-toe with Satan and resists the temptation and is victorious for us who are in Christ. As our representative, He wins the battle for us. He's the second Adam. And He's the true Israel. Israel, when they were in the wilderness, succumbed to temptation. But Jesus, the true Israelite, does not. He persists in righteousness and in obeying the will of God. Christ is victor. And that victory is for us. If you get rid of the idea of corporate sin and corporate guilt, then frankly you have to get rid of the idea of corporate righteousness and corporate justification too. Don't do that. Because without the shared righteousness of Christ given to us because of His victories, we have no hope. He's our representative. And He's one for us. Fifth, lastly, in the temptation of Jesus, we see that Jesus prepares us for the truth that God, God does lead His people into places, into wildernesses, where they will face temptation. He doesn't do the tempting, but He does lead us. And sometimes He leads us around the corner, and as we come around the corner, there is our adversary with a shiny apple saying, eat this. He leads us to places where we will be tempted. It was the Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness. And the Spirit will lead us places where we'll face temptation. How could it be otherwise? No matter where we are led, their temptation will be. If we're led into success, the temptation to pride is right there. If we're led into defeat and failure, the temptation to bitterness is right there. If we're led into wealth and prosperity, the temptation to self-reliance and greed is there. If we're led into poverty, the temptation to bitterness is there. If you're led into singleness, the temptation to lust is always there. If you're led into marriage, the temptation to selfishness is right there staring at you day in and day out. Wherever we're led, there's temptation. God does lead us into places where we will be tested and tempted. Why? To strengthen our faith to test its character, to strengthen it. Why? For our good. That's the same answer you get if you ask the question, why did God lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? Why did He lead Him into the wilderness to be tempted? It's for our good that He was tempted and resisted. For our good. To show that He is for us. In the wilderness, Jesus, Jesus being fully man, experienced temptation. He, he exposed the anatomy of temptation. He gave us tools to fight temptation. And He successfully won the battle for us. Now, 
as we go out about our day, about our week, about our lives, and we face temptation, we do so with the faith that is strengthened by the knowledge that Jesus is for us. Jesus is for us. Go out armed with that confidence this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would find us faithful in resisting temptation. Father, we pray that you would enlarge our faith as you enlarge our vision and our understanding and our knowledge of Jesus and his promises and the victories that he has won for us. Father, the victory has been won. We can be bold. We can resist. We can fight knowing that our good is your aim. It's your goal. It's your promise. Because in our good, you are glorified. Father, we pray that you would continue to prepare us. Arm us with your word. Strengthen us with your spirit so that we might glorify you with how we live as your church, as your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you.